Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 4 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 4. Deanne the Beautiful. When our guards aroused us from sleep we were much refreshed. They gave us food. Strips of dried meat it was, but it put new life and strength into us, so that now we too marched with high-held heads and took noble strides. At least I did, for I was young and proud. But poor Perry hated walking. On earth I had often seen him call a cab to travel a square. He was paying for it now, and his old legs wobbled so that I put my arm about him and half carried him through the balance of those frightful marches. The country began to change at last, and we wound up out of the level plain through mighty mountains of virgin granite. The tropical verdure of the lowlands was replaced by hardier vegetation, but even here the effects of constant heat and light were apparent in the immensity of the trees and the profusion of foliage and blooms. Crystal streams roared through their rocky channels, fed by the perpetual snows which we could see far above us. Above the snow-capped heights hung masses of heavy clouds. It was these, Perry explained, which evidently served the double purpose of replenishing the melting snows and protecting them from the direct rays of the sun. By this time we had picked up a smattering of the bastard language in which our guards addressed us as well as making good headway in the rather charming tongue of our co-captives. Directly ahead of me in the chain-gang was a young woman. Three feet of chain linked us together in a forced companionship, which I, at least, soon rejoiced in. For I found her a willing teacher, and from her I learned the language of her tribe, and much of the life and customs of the inner world, at least that part of it with which she was familiar. She told me that she was called Deanne the Beautiful, and that she belonged to the tribe of Amaz, which dwells in the cliffs above the Daryl Az, or Shallow Sea. "'How came you here?' I asked her. "'I was running away from Jubal the Ugly One,' she answered, as though that was explanation quite sufficient. "'Who is Jubal the Ugly One?' I asked. "'And why did you run away from him?' She looked at me in surprise. "'Why does a woman run away from a man?' She answered my question with another. "'They do not, where I come from,' I replied. "'Sometimes they run after them.' But she could not understand. Nor could I get her to grasp the fact that I was of another world. She was quite as positive that creation was originated solely to produce her own kind and the world she lived in, as are many of the outer world. "'But Jubal,' I insisted, "'tell me about him.' and why you ran away to be chained by the neck and scourged across the face of a world. Jubal the Ugly One placed his trophy before my father's house. It was the head of a mighty Tandor. It remained there and no greater trophy was placed beside it, so I knew that Jubal the Ugly One would come and take me as his mate. None other so powerful wished me, or they would have slain a mightier beast and thus have won me from Jubal. My father is not a mighty hunter. 
Once he was, but a sadok tossed him, and never again had he the full use of his right arm. My brother, Dakor the Strong One, had gone to the land of Sari to steal a mate for himself. Thus there was none, father, brother, or lover, to save me from Jubal the Ugly One, and I ran away and hid among the hills that skirt the land of Amaz, and there the Sagoths found me and made me captive. "'What will they do with you?' I asked. "'Where are they taking us?' Again she looked her incredulity. "'I can almost believe that you are of another world,' she said, "'for otherwise such ignorance were inexplicable. Do you really mean that you do not know that the Sagoths are the creatures of the Mahars, the mighty Mahars who think they own Pellucidar and all that walks or grows upon its surface, or creeps or burrows beneath, or swims within its lakes and oceans, or flies through its air? Next you will be telling me that you never before heard of the Mahars." I was loath to do it, and further incur her scorn, but there was no alternative if I were to absorb knowledge, so I made a clean breast of my pitiful ignorance as to the mighty Mahars. She was shocked. But she did her very best to enlighten me, though much that she said was as Greek would have been to her. She described the Mahars largely by comparisons. In this way they were like unto Thiptars, and that to the hairless Lidi. About all I gleaned of them was that they were quite hideous, had wings and webbed feet, lived in cities built beneath the ground, could swim under water for great distances, and were very, very wise. The Sagoths were their weapons of offense and defense, and the races like herself were their hands and feet, they were the slaves and servants who did all the manual labor. The Mahars were the heads, the brains of the inner world. I longed to see this wondrous race of supermen. Perry learned the language with me. When we halted, as we occasionally did, though sometimes the halt seemed ages apart, he would join in the conversation, as would Gak the hairy one he who was chained just ahead of Diane the Beautiful. Ahead of Gak was Huja the Sly One. He too entered the conversation occasionally. Most of his remarks were directed toward Diane the Beautiful. It didn't take half an eye to see that he had developed a bad case. But the girl appeared totally oblivious to his thinly-veiled advances. Did I say thinly-veiled? There is a race of men in New Zealand or Australia, I have forgotten which, who indicate their preference for the lady of their affections by banging her over the head with a bludgeon. By comparison with this method, Hooja's love-making might be called thinly veiled. At first it caused me to blush violently, although I have seen several old years out at Rector's, and in other less fashionable places off-Broadway and in Vienna and Hamburg. But the girl, she was magnificent. It was easy to see that she considered herself as entirely above and apart from her present surroundings and company. She talked with me and with Perry and with the taciturn Gak because we were respectful, but she couldn't even see Hooja the Sly One, much less hear him, and that made him furious. He tried to get one of the Sagas to move the girl up ahead of him in the slave gang, but the fellow only poked him with his spear and told him that he had selected the girl for his own property, that he would buy her from the Mahars as soon as they reached Futra. Futra, it seemed, was the city of our destination. After passing over the first chain of mountains we skirted a salt sea, upon whose bosom swam countless horrid things. 
seal-like creatures there were, with long necks stretching ten and more feet above their enormous bodies, and whose snake heads were split with gaping mouths bristling with countless fangs. There were huge tortoises, too, paddling about among these other reptiles, which Perry said were plesiosaurs of the Leas. I didn't question his veracity, they might have been most anything. Deanne told me they were Tandorazes, or Tandors of the Sea, and that the other, the more fearsome reptiles, which occasionally rose from the deep to do battle with them, were Asderiths, or Sea-Deriths, Perry called them ichthyosaurs. They resembled a whale with the head of an alligator. I had forgotten what little geology I had studied at school. About all that remained was an impression of horror that the illustrations of restored prehistoric monsters had made upon me, and a well-defined belief that any man with a pig shank and a vivid imagination could restore most any sort of paleolithic monster he saw fit, and take rank as a first-class paleontologist. But when I saw these sleek, shiny carcasses shimmering in the sunlight as they emerged from the ocean shaking their giant heads, when I saw the waters roll from their sinuous bodies in miniature waterfalls as they glided hither and thither, now upon the surface, now half-submerged, as I saw them meet, open-mouthed, hissing and snorting, in their titanic and interminable warring, I realized how futile is man's poor, weak imagination by comparison with nature's incredible genius. And Perry! He was absolutely flabbergasted. He said so himself. "'David,' he remarked, after we had marched for a long time beside that awful sea, "'David, I used to teach geology and I thought that I believed what I taught. But now I see that I did not believe it, that it is impossible for man to believe such things as these, unless he sees them with his own eyes. We take things for granted, perhaps, because we are told over and over again, and have no way of disproving them, like religions, for example. But we don't believe them, we only think we do. If you ever get back to the outer world, you will find that the geologists and paleontologists will be the first to set you down a liar, for they know that no such creatures as they restore ever existed. It is all right to imagine them as existing in an equally imaginary epoch, but now, poof!" At the next halt, Hooja the Sly One managed to find enough slack chain to permit him to worm himself back quite close to Deanne. We were all standing, and as he edged near the girl she turned her back upon him in such a truly earthly feminine manner that I could scarce repress a smile. But it was a short-lived smile, for on the instant the sly one's hand fell upon the girl's bare arm, jerking her roughly toward him. I was not then familiar with the customs or social ethics which prevailed within Pellucidar but even so I did not need the appealing look which the girl shot to me with her magnificent eyes to influence my subsequent act. What the sly one's intention was I paused not to inquire, but instead, before he could lay hold of her with his other hand, I placed a right to the point of his jaw that felled him in his tracks. A roar of approval went up from those of the other prisoners and the Sagoths who had witnessed the brief drama, not, as I later learned, because I had championed the girl but for the neat, and to them, astounding method by which I had bested Hooja. And the girl? At first she looked at me with wide, wondering eyes, and then she dropped her head, her face half averted, and a delicate flush suffused her cheek. For a moment she stood thus in silence, 
and then her head went high, and she turned her back upon me as she had upon Hooja. Some of the prisoners laughed, and I saw the face of Gak the Hairy One go very black as he looked at me searchingly. And what I could see of Diane's cheek went suddenly from red to white. Immediately after we resumed the march, and though I realized that in some way I had offended Diane the Beautiful, I could not prevail upon her to talk with me that I might learn wherein I had erred. In fact, I might quite as well have been addressing a sphinx for all the attention I got. At last my own foolish pride stepped in and prevented my making any further attempts, and thus a companionship that, without my realizing it, had come to mean a great deal to me was cut off. Thereafter I confined my conversation to Perry. Hooja did not renew his advances toward the girl, nor did he again venture near me. Again the weary and apparently interminable marching became a perfect nightmare of horrors to me. The more firmly fixed became the realization that the girl's friendship had meant so much to me, the more I came to miss it, and the more impregnable the barrier of silly pride. But I was very young, and would not ask Gak for the explanation which I was sure he could give, and that might have made everything all right again. On the march, or during halts, Deanne refused consistently to notice me. When her eyes wandered in my direction she looked either over my head or directly through me. At last I became desperate, and determined to swallow my self-esteem and again beg her to tell me how I had offended, and how I might make reparation. I made up my mind that I should do this at the next halt. We were approaching another range of mountains at the time, and when we reached them, instead of winding across them through some high-flung pass, we entered a mighty natural tunnel, a series of labyrinthine grottoes, dark as Erebus. The guards had no torches or light of any description. In fact, we had seen no artificial light or sign of fire since we had entered Pellucidar. In a land of perpetual noon there is no need of light above ground, yet I marveled that they had no means of lighting their way through these dark, subterranean passages. So we crept along at a snail's pace, with much stumbling and falling, the guards keeping up a sing-song chant ahead of us, interspersed with certain high notes which I found always indicated rough places and turns. Halts were now more frequent but I did not wish to speak to Diane until I could see from the expression of her face how she was receiving my apologies. At last a faint glow ahead forewarned us of the end of the tunnel, for which I for one was devoutly thankful. Then at a sudden turn we emerged into the full light of the noonday sun. But with it came a sudden realization of what meant to me a real catastrophe. Diane was gone, and with her a half-dozen other prisoners. The guards saw it too, and the ferocity of their rage was terrible to behold. Their awesome, bestial faces were contorted in the most diabolical expressions, as they accused each other of responsibility for the loss. Finally they fell upon us, beating us with their spear-shafts and hatchets. They had already killed two near the head of the line, and were like to have finished the balance of us, when their leader finally put a stop to the brutal slaughter. Never in all my life had I witnessed a more horrible exhibition of bestial rage. I thanked God that Deanne had not been one of those left to endure it. Of the twelve prisoners who had been chained ahead of me, each alternate one had been freed commencing with Deanne. Hooja was gone. Gak remained. What could it mean? 
How had it been accomplished? The commander of the guards was investigating. Soon he discovered that the rude locks which had held the neckbands in place had been deftly picked. Huja, the sly one, murmured Gak, who was now next to me in line. He has taken the girl that you would not have," he continued, glancing at me. "'That I would not have?' I cried. "'What do you mean?' He looked at me closely for a moment. "'I have doubted your story that you are from another world,' he said at last. "'But yet upon no other grounds could your ignorance of the ways of Pellucidar be explained. Do you really mean that you do not know that you offended the beautiful one, and how?' I do not know, Gak, I replied. Then shall I tell you. When a man of Pellucidar intervenes between another man and the woman the other man would have, the woman belongs to the victor. Diane the Beautiful belongs to you. You should have claimed her or released her. Had you taken her hand, it would have indicated your desire to make her your mate, and had you raised her hand above her head and then dropped it, it would have meant that you did not wish her for a mate and that you released her from all obligation to you. By doing neither you have put upon her the greatest affront that a man may put upon a woman. Now she is your slave. No man will take her as mate, or may take her honorably, until he shall have overcome you in combat, and men do not choose slave women as their mates, at least not the men of Pellucidar." "'I did not know, Gak!' I cried. I did not know. Not for all Pellucidar would I have harmed Diane the Beautiful by word or look or act of mine. I do not want her as my slave. I do not want her as my—but here I stopped. The vision of that sweet and innocent face floated before me amidst the soft mists of imagination, and where I had on the second believed that I clung only to the memory of a gentle friendship I had lost. Yet now it seemed that it would have been disloyalty to her to have said that I did not want Diane the Beautiful as my mate. I had not thought of her except as a welcome friend in a strange, cruel world. Even now I did not think that I loved her. I believe Gak must have read the truth more in my expression than in my words, for presently he laid his hand upon my shoulder. "'Man of another world,' he said, "'I believe you. Lips may lie but when the heart speaks through the eyes it tells only the truth. Your heart has spoken to me. I know now that you meant no affront to Diane the Beautiful. She is not of my tribe, but her mother is my sister. She does not know it. Her mother was stolen by Diane's father who came with many others of the tribe of Amoz to battle with us for our women, the most beautiful women of Pellucidar. Then was her father king of Amaz and her mother was daughter of the king of Sari, to whose power I, his son, have succeeded. Diane is the daughter of kings, though her father is no longer king, since the Sadok tossed him and Jubal the Ugly One wrested his kingship from him. Because of her lineage the wrong you did her was greatly magnified in the eyes of all who saw it. She will never forgive you." I asked Gak if there was not some way in which I could release the girl from the bondage and ignominy I had unwittingly placed upon her. "'If ever you find her, yes,' he answered. "'Merely to raise her hand above her head and drop it in the presence of others is sufficient to release her. But how may you ever find her, you who are doomed to a life of slavery yourself in the buried city of Futra?' "'Is there no escape?' I asked. Huja the sly one escaped and took the others with him. 
replied Gek. But there are no more dark places on the way to Futra, and once there it is not so easy. The Mahars are very wise. Even if one escaped from Futra there are the Thiptars. They would find you, and then... The hairy one shuddered. No, you will never escape the Mahars. It was a cheerful prospect. I asked Perry what he thought about it, but he only shrugged his shoulders and continued a long-winded prayer he had been at for some time. He was wont to say that the only redeeming feature of our captivity was the ample time it gave him for the improvisation of prayers. It was becoming an obsession with him. The Sagos had begun to take notice of his habit of declaiming throughout entire marches. One of them asked him what he was saying, to whom he was talking. The question gave me an idea, so I answered quickly before Perry could say anything. "'Do not interrupt him,' I said. "'He is a very holy man in the world from which we come. He is speaking to spirits, which you cannot see. Do not interrupt him, or they will spring out of the air upon you and rend you limb from limb. Like that!' I jumped toward the great brute with a loud boo that sent him stumbling backward. I took a long chance, I realized, but if we could make any capital out of Perry's harmless mania, I wanted to make it while the making was prime. It worked splendidly. The Sagoths treated us both with marked respect during the balance of the journey, and then passed the word along to their masters, the Mahars. Two marches after this episode we came to the city of Futra. The entrance to it was marked by two lofty towers of granite which guarded a flight of steps leading to the buried city. Sagoths were on guard here, as well as at a hundred or more other towers scattered about over a large plain. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core Chapter 5 Slaves As we descended the broad staircase which led to the main avenue of Futra, I caught my first sight of the dominant race of the inner world. Involuntarily I shrank back as one of the creatures approached to inspect us. A more hideous thing it would be impossible to imagine. The all-powerful Mahars of Pellucidar are great reptiles, some six or eight feet in length with long, narrow heads and great round eyes. Their beak-like mouths are lined with sharp white fangs, and the backs of their huge lizard bodies are serrated into bony ridges from their necks to the end of their long tails. Their feet are equipped with three webbed toes, while from the forefeet membranous wings, which are attached to their bodies just in front of the hind legs, protrude at an angle of forty-five degrees toward the rear ending in sharp points several feet above their bodies. I glanced at Perry as the thing passed me to inspect him. The old man was gazing at the horrid creature with wide, astonished eyes. When it passed on he turned to me. "'A ram for Hinchus of the Middle Olytic, David,' he said. "'But, gad, how enormous! The largest remains we ever have discovered have never indicated a size greater than that attained by an ordinary crow.' As we continued on through the main avenue of Futra, we saw many thousands of the creatures coming and going upon their daily duties. They paid but little attention to us. 
Futra is laid out underground with a regularity that indicates remarkable engineering skill. It is hewn from solid limestone strata. The streets are broad and of a uniform height of twenty feet. At intervals, tubes pierce the roof of this underground city, and by means of lenses and reflectors transmit the sunlight, softened and diffused, to dispel what would otherwise be Sumerian darkness. In like manner air is introduced. Perry and I were taken, with Gak, to a large public building, where one of the Sagoths who had formed our guard explained to a Maharan official the circumstances surrounding our capture. The method of communication between these two was remarkable, in that no spoken words were exchanged. They employed a species of sign language. As I was to learn later, the Mahars have no ears, not any spoken language. Among themselves they communicate by means of what Perry says must be a sixth sense which is cognizant of a fourth dimension. I never did quite grasp him, though he endeavored to explain it to me upon numerous occasions. I suggested telepathy, but he said no, that it was not telepathy, since they could only communicate when in each other's presence, nor could they talk with the Sagoths or the other inhabitants of Pellucidar by the same method they used to converse with one another. "'What they do,' said Perry, "'is to project their thoughts into the fourth dimension, when they become appreciable to the sixth sense of their listener. Do I make myself quite clear?' "'You do not, Perry,' I replied. He shook his head in despair and returned to his work. They had set us to carrying a great accumulation of Maharan literature from one apartment to another, and there arranging it upon shelves. I suggested to Perry that we were in the public library of Futra. But later, as he commenced to discover the key to their written language, he assured me that we were handling the ancient archives of the race. During this period my thoughts were continually upon Dian the Beautiful. I was, of course, glad that she had escaped the Mahars, and the fate that had been suggested by the Sagoth who had threatened to purchase her upon our arrival at Futra. I often wondered if the little party of fugitives had been overtaken by the guards who had returned to search for them. Sometimes I was not so sure but that I should have been more contented to know that Dion was here in Futra, than to think of her at the mercy of Huja the Sly One. Gak, Perry, and I often talked together of possible escape, but the Sarian was so steeped in his lifelong belief that no one could escape from the Mahars except by a miracle, that he was not much aid to us. His attitude was of one who waits for the miracle to come to him. At my suggestion, Perry and I fashioned some swords of scraps of iron, which we discovered among some rubbish in the cells where we slept for we were permitted almost unrestrained freedom of action within the limits of the building to which we had been assigned. So great were the number of slaves who waited upon the inhabitants of Futra, that none of us was apt to be overburdened with work, nor were our masters unkind to us. We hid our new weapons beneath the skins which formed our beds, and when Perry conceived the idea of making bows and arrows, weapons apparently unknown within Pellucidar. Next came shields but these I found it easier to steal from the walls of the outer guardroom of the building. We had completed these arrangements for our protection after leaving Futra, when the Sagoths who had been sent to recapture the escaped prisoners returned with four of them, of whom Huja was one. Dian and the two others had eluded them. 
it so happened that Hooja was confined in the same building with us. He told Gak that he had not seen Dien or the others after releasing them within the dark grotto. What had become of them he had not the faintest conception. They might be wandering yet, lost within the labyrinthine tunnel, if not dead from starvation. I was now still further apprehensive as to the fate of Dien, and at this time, I imagine, came the first realization that my affection for the girl might be prompted by more than friendship. During my waking hours she was constantly the subject of my thoughts, and when I slept her dear face haunted my dreams. More than ever was I determined to escape the Mahars. Perry, I confided to the old man, if I have to search every inch of this diminutive world I am going to find Dee and the Beautiful and right the wrong I unintentionally did her. That was the excuse I made for Perry's benefit. Diminutive world? he scoffed. You don't know what you're talking about, my boy. And then he showed me a map of Pellucidar which he had recently discovered among the manuscript he was arranging. Look, he cried, pointing to it, this is evidently water, and all this land. Do you notice the general configuration of the two areas? Where the oceans are upon the outer crust is land here. These relatively small areas of ocean follow the general lines of the continents of the outer world. We know that the crust of the globe is five hundred miles in thickness. Then the inside diameter of Pellucidar must be seven thousand miles, and the superficial area one hundred sixty-five million four hundred eighty thousand square miles. Three-fourths of this is land. Think of it! A land area of a hundred and twenty-four million one hundred and ten thousand square miles. Our own world contains but fifty-three million square miles of land, the balance of its surface being covered by water. Just as we often compare nations by their relative land areas, so if we compare these two worlds in the same way, we have the strange anomaly of a larger world within a smaller one. Where within the vast Pellucidar would you search for your Dian? Without stars, or moon, or changing sun, how could you find her even though you knew where she might be found? The proposition was a corker. It quite took my breath away but I found that it left me all the more determined to attempt it. "'If Gak will accompany us, we may be able to do it,' I suggested. Perry and I sought him out and put the question straight to him. "'Gak,' I said, "'we are determined to escape from this bondage. Will you accompany us?' "'They will set the Thipdars upon us,' he said, "'and then we shall be killed. But,' he hesitated, I would take the chance if I thought that I might possibly escape and return to my own people." "'Could you find your way back to your own land?' asked Perry. "'And could you aid David in his search for Dian?' "'Yes.' "'But how,' persisted Perry, "'could you travel to strange country without heavenly bodies or a compass to guide you?' Gek didn't know what Perry meant by heavenly bodies or a compass but he assured us that you might blindfold any man of Pellucidar and carry him to the farthermost corner of the world, yet he would be able to come directly to his own home again by the shortest route. He seemed surprised to think that we found anything wonderful in it. Perry said it must be some sort of homing instinct such as is possessed by certain breeds of earthly pigeons. I didn't know, of course, but it gave me an idea. "'Then Dian could have found her way directly to her own people?' I asked. Surely, replied Gak, 
unless some mighty beast of prey killed her. I was for making the attempted escape at once, but both Perry and Gag counseled waiting for some propitious accident which would ensure us some small degree of success. I didn't see what accident could befall a whole community in a land of perpetual daylight, where the inhabitants had no fixed habits of sleep. Why, I am sure that some of the Mahars never sleep, while others may, at long intervals, crawl into the dark recesses beneath their dwellings and curl up in protracted slumber. Perry says that if a Mahar stays awake for three years, he will make up all his lost sleep in a long year's snooze. That may be all true, but I never saw but three of them asleep, and it was the sight of these three that gave me a suggestion for our means of escape. I had been searching about far below the levels that we slaves were supposed to frequent, possibly fifty feet beneath the main floor of the building, among a network of corridors and apartments when I came suddenly upon three Mahars curled up upon a bed of skins. At first I thought they were dead, but later their regular breathing convinced me of my error. Like a flash the thought came to me of the marvelous opportunity these sleeping reptiles offered, as a means of eluding the watchfulness of our captors and the Sagoth guards. Hastening back to Perry, where he pored over a musty pile of, to me, meaningless hieroglyphics, I explained my plan to him. To my surprise, he was horrified. "'It would be murder, David!' he cried. "'Murder? To kill a reptilian monster?' I asked in astonishment. "'Here they are not monsters, David,' he replied. "'Here they are the dominant race. We are the monsters, the lower orders. In Pellucidar evolution has progressed along different lines than upon the outer earth.' These terrible convulsions of nature time and time again wiped out the existing species, but for this fact some monster of the Sarazoic epoch might rule today upon our own world. We see here what might well have occurred in our own history had conditions been what they have been here. Life within Pellucidar is far younger than upon the outer crust. Here man has but reached a stage analogous to the Stone Age of our own world's history but for countless millions of years these reptiles have been progressing. Possibly it is the sixth sense which I am sure they possess that has given them an advantage over the other and more frightfully armed of their fellows, but this we may never know. They look upon us as we look upon the beasts of our fields, and I learn from their written records that other races of Mahars feed upon men, they keep them in great droves as we keep cattle. They breed them most carefully, and when they are quite fat, they kill and eat them." I shuddered. "'What is there horrible about it, David?' the old man asked. "'They understand us no better than we understand the lower animals of our own world. Why, I have come across here very learned discussions of the question as to whether Gilaks, that is, men, have any means of communication. One writer claims that we do not even reason that our every act is mechanical or instinctive. The dominant race of Pellucidar, David, have not yet learned that men converse among themselves or reason. Because we do not converse as they do, it is beyond them to imagine that we converse at all. It is thus that we reason in relation to the brutes of our own world. They know that the Sagoths have a spoken language, but they cannot comprehend it, or how it manifests itself, since they have no auditory apparatus. They believe that the motion of the lips alone convey the meaning. 
that the Sagoths can communicate with us is incomprehensible to them. Yes, David, he concluded, it would entail murder to carry out your plan. Very well, Van Perry, I replied, I shall become a murderer. He got me to go over the plan again most carefully, and for some reason, which was not at the time clear to me, insisted upon a very careful description of the apartments and corridors I had just explored. I wonder, David, he said at length, as you are determined to carry out your wild scheme, if we could not accomplish something of very real and lasting benefit for the human race of Pellucidar at the same time. Listen, I have learned much of a most surprising nature from these archives of the Mahars. That you may not appreciate my plan, I shall briefly outline the history of the race. Once the males were all-powerful, but ages ago the females, little by little, assumed the mastery. For other ages no noticeable change took place in the race of Mahars. It continued to progress under the intelligent and beneficent rule of the ladies. Science took vast strides. This was especially true of the sciences which we know as biology and eugenics. Finally, a certain female scientist announced the fact that she had discovered a method whereby eggs might be fertilized by chemical means after they were laid. All true reptiles, you know, are hatched from eggs. What happened? Immediately the necessity for males ceased to exist. The race was no longer dependent upon them. More ages elapsed until at the present time we find a race consisting exclusively of females. But here is the point. The secret of this chemical formula is kept by a single race of Mahars. It is in the city of Futra, and unless I am greatly in error, I judge from your description of the vaults through which you pass today that it lies hidden in the cellar of this building. For two reasons they hide it away and guard it jealously. First, because upon it depends the very life of the race of Mahars, and second, owing to the fact that when it was public property as at first, so many were experimenting with it that the danger of overpopulation became very grave. David, if we can escape, and at the same time take with us this great secret, what will we not have accomplished for the human race within Pellucidar? The very thought of it fairly overpowered me. Why, we too would be the means of placing the men of the inner world in their rightful place among created things. Only the Sagoths would then stand between them and absolute supremacy, and I was not quite sure but that the Sagoths owed all their power to the greater intelligence of the Mahars. I could not believe that these gorilla-like beasts were the mental superiors of the human race of Pellucidar. "'Why, Perry!' I exclaimed. You and I may reclaim a whole world. Together we can lead the races of men out of the darkness of ignorance into the light of advancement and civilization. At one step we may carry them from the age of stone to the twentieth century. It's marvelous, absolutely marvelous, just to think about it." "'David,' said the old man, "'I believe that God sent us here for just that purpose. It shall be my life-work to teach them His word to lead them into the light of His mercy while we are training their hearts and hands in the ways of culture and civilization." "'You are right, Perry,' I said. And while you are teaching them to pray, I'll be teaching them to fight, and between us we'll make a race of men that will be an honor to us both." Gak had entered the apartment some time before we concluded our conversation, 
and now he wanted to know what we were so excited about. Perry thought we had best not tell him too much, and so I only explained that I had a plan for escape. When I had outlined it to him, he seemed about as horror-struck as Perry had been, but for a different reason. The hairy one only considered the horrible fate that would be ours were we discovered, but at last I prevailed upon him to accept my plan as the only feasible one, and when I had assured him that I would take all the responsibility for it were we captured, he accorded a reluctant assent. End of chapter 5《Chapter Six of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core, Chapter Six, The Beginning of Horror. Within Pellucidar, one time is as good as another. There were no nights to mask our attempted escape. All must be done in broad daylight. All but the work I had to do in the apartment beneath the building. So we determined to put our plan to an immediate test, lest the Mahars who made it possible should awake before I reached them. But we were doomed to disappointment, for no sooner had we reached the main floor of the building on our way to the pits beneath, than we encountered hurrying bands of slaves, being hastened under strong Sagoth guard out of the edifice to the avenue beyond. Other Sagoths were darting hither and thither in search of other slaves, and the moment that we appeared we were pounced upon and hustled into the line of marching humans. What the purpose or nature of the general exodus we did not know, but presently through the line of captives ran the rumor that two escaped slaves had been recaptured, a man and a woman, and that we were marching to witness their punishment, for the man had killed a Sagoth of the detachment that had pursued and overtaken them. At the intelligence my heart sprang to my throat for I was sure that the two were of those who escaped in the dark grotto with Hooja the Sly One, and that Dian must be the woman. Gak thought so too, as did Perry. "'Is there naught that we may do to save her?' I asked Gak. "'Naught,' he replied. Along the crowded avenue we marched, the guards showing unusual cruelty toward us, as though we too had been implicated in the murder of their fellow. The occasion was to serve as an object lesson to all other slaves of the danger and futility of attempted escape, and the fatal consequences of taking the life of a superior being, and so I imagined that Sagoth felt amply justified in making the entire proceeding as uncomfortable and painful to us as possible. They jabbed us with their spears and struck at us with the hatchets at the least provocation, and at no provocation at all. It was a most uncomfortable half-hour that we spent before we were finally herded through a low entrance into a huge building, the center of which was given up to a good-sized arena. Benches surrounding this open space were upon three sides, and along the fourth were heaped huge boulders which rose in receding tiers toward the roof. At first I could make out the purpose of this mighty pile of rock unless it were intended as a rough and picturesque background for the scenes which were enacted in the arena before it. But presently, after the wooden benches had been pretty well filled by slaves and sagoths, I discovered the purpose of the boulders, for then the Mahars began to file into the enclosure. They marched directly across the arena toward the rocks upon the opposite side, where, spreading their bat-like wings, they rose above the high wall of the pit, settling down upon the boulders above. These were the reserved seats, 
the boxes of the elect. Reptiles that they were, the rough surface of a great stone is to them as plush as upholstery is to us. Here they lolled, blinking their hideous eyes, and doubtless conversing with one another in their sixth-sense fourth-dimension language. For the first time I beheld their queen. She differed from the others in no feature that was appreciable to my earthly eyes. In fact, all Mahars look alike to me. But when she crossed the arena after the balance of her female subjects had found their boulders, she was preceded by a score of huge sagoths, the largest I had ever seen, and on either side of her waddled a huge thipdar, while behind came another score of sagoth guardsmen. At the barrier the sagoths clambered up the steep side with truly ape-like agility, while behind them the haughty queen rose upon her wings with her two frightful dragons close beside her and settled down upon the largest boulder of them all in the exact center of that side of the amphitheatre, which is reserved for the dominant race. Here she squatted, a most repulsive and uninteresting queen, though doubtless quite as well assured of her beauty and divine right to rule as the proudest monarch of the outer world. And then the music started, music without sound. The Mahars cannot hear, so the drums and fifes and horns of earthly bands are unknown among them. The band consists of a score or more of mahars. It filled out in the center of the arena where the creatures upon the rocks might see it, and there it performed for fifteen or twenty minutes. Their technique consisted in waving their tails and moving their heads in a regular succession of measured movements, resulting in a cadence which evidently pleased the eye of the mahar, as the cadence of our own instrumental music pleases our ears. Sometimes the band took measured steps in unison to one side or the other, or backward and again forward. It all seemed very silly and meaningless to me. But at the end of the first piece the mahars upon the rocks showed the first indications of enthusiasm that I had seen displayed by the dominant race of Pellucidar. They beat their great wings up and down and smote their rocky perches with their mighty tails until the ground shook. Then the band started another piece, and all was again as silent as the grave. That was one great beauty about Mahar music. If you didn't happen to like a piece that was being played, all you had to do was shut your eyes. When the band had exhausted its repertory, it took wing and settled upon the rocks above and behind the queen. Then the business of the day was on. A man and woman were pushed into the arena by a couple of Sagoth guardsmen. I leaned forward in my seat to scrutinize the female, hoping against hope that she might prove to be another than Dian the Beautiful. Her back was toward me for a while, and the sight of the great mass of raven hair piled high upon her head filled me with alarm. Presently a door in one side of the arena wall was opened to admit a huge, shaggy, bull-like creature. "'A boss!' whispered Perry excitedly. His kind roamed the outer crust with the cave-bear and the mammoth ages and ages ago. We have been carried back a million years, David, to the childhood of a planet. Is it not wondrous?" But I saw only the raven hair of a half-naked girl, and my heart stood still in dumb misery at the sight of her, nor had I any eyes for the wonders of natural history. But for Perry and Gack I should have leapt to the floor of the arena and shared whatever fate lay in store for this priceless treasure of the Stone Age. With the advent of the Bose, they called the thing a thag within Pellucidar, 
Two spears were tossed into the arena at the feet of the prisoners. It seemed to me that a bean-shooter would have been as effective against the mighty monster as these pitiful weapons. As the animal approached the two, bellowing and pawing the ground with the strength of many earthly bulls, another door directly beneath us was opened, and from it issued the most terrific roar that ever had fallen upon my outraged ears. I could not at first see the beast from which emanated this fearsome challenge, but the sound had the effect of bringing the two victims around with a sudden start, and then I saw the girl's face. She was not Dean. I could have wept for relief. And now, as the two stood frozen in terror, I saw the author of that fearsome sound creeping stealthily into view. It was a huge tiger, such as hunted the great boasts through the jungle's primeval when the world was young. In contour and markings it was not unlike the noblest of the Bengals of our own world, but as its dimensions were exaggerated to colossal proportions, so too were its colorings exaggerated. Its vivid yellows fairly screamed aloud, its whites were as eider-down, its blacks glossy as the finest anthracite coal, and its coat long and shaggy as a mountain goat. That it is a beautiful animal there is no gainsaying but if its size and colors are magnified here within Pellucidar, so is the ferocity of its disposition. It is not the occasional member of its species that is a man-hunter. All are man-hunters. But they do not confine their foraging to man alone, for there is no flesh or fish within Pellucidar that they will not eat with relish in the constant efforts which they make to furnish their huge carcasses with sufficient sustenance to maintain their mighty thews. Upon one side of the doomed pair the thag bellowed and advanced, and upon the other Tarag the frightful crept toward them with gaping mouth and dripping fangs. The man seized the spears, handing one of them to the woman. At the sound of the roaring of the tiger the bull's bellowing became a veritable frenzy of rageful noise. Never in my life had I heard such an infernal din as the two brutes made and to think it was all lost upon the hideous reptiles for whom the show was staged. The thag was charging now from one side and the terag from the other. The two puny things standing between them seemed already lost, but at the very moment that the beasts were upon them the man grasped his companion by the arm and together they leapt to one side, while the frenzied creatures came together like locomotives in collision. There ensued a battle royal which, for sustained and frightful ferocity, transcends the power of imagination or description. Time and again the colossal bull tossed the enormous tiger high into the air, but each time that huge cat touched the ground he returned to the encounter with an apparently undiminished strength and seemingly increased ire. For a while the man and woman busied themselves only with keeping out of the way of the two creatures but finally I saw them separate and each creep stealthily toward one of the combatants. The tiger was now upon the bull's broad back, clinging to the huge neck with powerful fangs while its long, strong talons ripped the heavy hide into shreds and ribbons. For a moment the bull stood bellowing and quivering with pain and rage, its cloven hoofs widespread, its tail lashing viciously from side to side and then, in a mad orgy of bucking, it went careening about the arena in frenzied attempt to unseat its rending rider. It was with difficulty that the girl avoided the first mad rush of the wounded animal. All its efforts to rid itself of the tiger seemed futile, 
until in desperation it threw itself upon the ground, rolling over and over. A little of this so disconcerted the tiger, knocking its breath from it, I imagine, that it lost its hold and then, quick as a cat, the great thag was up again and had buried those mighty horns deep in the Tareg's abdomen, pinning him to the floor of the arena. The great cat clawed at the shaggy head until eyes and ears were gone, and naught but a few strips of ragged bloody flesh remained upon the skull. Yet through all the agony of that fearful punishment the thag still stood motionless, pinning down his adversary. And then the man leapt in, seeing that the blind bull would be the least formidable enemy, and ran his spear through the tarag's heart. As the animal's fierce clawing ceased, the bull raised his gory, sightless head, and with a horrid roar ran headlong across the arena. With great leaps and bounds he came, straight toward the arena wall directly beneath where we sat, and then accident carried him, in one of his mighty springs, completely over the barrier into the midst of the slaves and sagoths just in front of us. Swinging his bloody horns from side to side, the beast cut a wide swath before him, straight upward toward our seats. Before him slaves and gorilla men fought in mad stampede to escape the menace of the creature's death agonies, for such only could that frightful charge have been. Forgetful of us, our guards joined in the general rush for the exits, many of which pierced the wall of the amphitheatre behind us. Perry, Gack, and I became separated in the chaos, which reigned for a few moments after the beast cleared the wall of the arena, each intent upon saving his own hide. I ran to the right, passing several exits choked with the fear-mad mob that were battling to escape. One would have thought that an entire herd of thags was loose behind them, rather than a single blinded, dying beast, but such is the effect of panic upon a crowd. End of chapter 6「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.